0: As has already been stated in the announcements, we're certainly appreciative of the presence of each and every one this evening, and most importantly, the Lord is well pleased with those who've gathered with a proper interest in their heart and the desire to offer an acceptable worship unto the great God of heaven, for He certainly is greatly deserving of all the homage and worship that we can offer toward Him. And so isn't it great that we can be blessed with the opportunity as we are this evening? We have already been able to sing some wonderful hymns of praise to God, to collectively pray into Him, and of course to encourage and edify one another as we we have even been able to meet. But we also now have the precious opportunity to open the wonderful Word of God and to consider some things from it in our continuing study of science and the Bible. As you can probably tell, we've come to the sixth installment in that series tonight, And perhaps a brief word of reminder might bring us to where we currently are. In that series, our goal has been to see some of the errors and difficulties that sometimes are presented to us by those who seem so knowledgeable about science especially who seems so boldly able to claim, well, the Bible contradict science. And hence, they encourage our students, and perhaps even we who are older, to consider the Bible as a book of stories and myths, a book of legends, certainly not the infallible, inspired Word of God that it claims to be. In our study, thus, we have taken the approach to let God's Word speak for itself. And we've been able to amazingly see that in many instances there were things scientifically written in the scriptures, centuries, sometimes even millennia, before scientists discovered those very same ideas. As we have found those ideas so wonderfully encouraging, we come tonight to yet another installment in the series. So far, we've looked at astronomy. We have found that many of the things concerning the specifics of the heavens were unfolded long before the telescope was invented. Then we looked at biology and again found some things concerning life, be it human or otherwise, and the descriptions were amazing. Following our discussion of biology, we noted geology. In particular, we cast the spotlight on asking how old is earth? We found God's word to answer that question, and that in fact is a bedrock thought about the truth in geology, not human opinion concerning it. Last week we looked at meteorology and oceanography and found yet again God's Word does make mention of some things about both of those scientific areas and again long before scientists came to discover them themselves. I might submit to you tonight that we will come to yet two more disciplines in the sciences, chemistry on the one hand and physics on the other, as we will look at some of the things concerning those matters as they're touched upon in the Bible. I feel confident that yet again we will be amazed to appreciate centuries before scientists came to know some things, God's Word had at least indirect allusions to it. And so without further ado, let's first of all consider some matters in chemistry. Let me be quick to say that tonight, as has been the case in the others, it is not my intent for it to be a chemistry class, nor a physics class, the approach of a Worship service to God wouldn't be a useful thing if that were what I attempted to preach. Our thought will be to simply ask, what are some basics of chemistry, some thoughts in physics that it seems are found in the Word of God? To begin that discussion, let's start first of all with chemistry. First, what is chemistry? If you have taken that in college, or in high school, or perhaps otherwise, I hope that my definition will be a fitting one for what you remember. And if you haven't yet taken that subject, then I hope that it will prepare you at least in a basic way for what you will encounter when you do take a course like chemistry. Chemistry is a science that deals with the composition and the properties of substances. There are some who call it the central science and perhaps that's a fair title. As one learns about chemistry, we can appreciate, I think, the value of that subject to us. Many of the medicines that we expectantly take by prescription from a doctor, a chemist has had a role to play in the development of that medicine. Many of the substances that we use daily, everything from that Teflon coating on the pans that we may have cooked breakfast on this morning, to the other things that are so needful for the actual flowing of the electricity in our houses. Chemists had a role to play in helping to bring that to reality. But to consider any of that, Matt, we notice in terms of chemistry, as valuable as it is as a subject, our interest for tonight, does God's Word say anything about things that a chemist today would readily appreciate and even teach but in fact were written long before chemists came to discover it. The first one that I'd like to ask you to consider is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verses 10 and 12 of that book, of that chapter of that book, we read a rather powerful and penetrating statement from the hand of the apostle Peter. In fact, Peter, as he makes a description of the coming day of God that occasion in which the things will be consumed in a great fire on that latter day, this is the thing that Peter had in mind. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. He had just preceded that discussion with a reference to one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And as he came to appreciate and to set forth the truth of that great destruction of earth, isn't it still fascinating that he did make reference to the word elements? It is that word to which I'd like to call your attention over the next moment or two. To in fact rehearse how chemists teach things, Modern chemistry began with the work of a gentleman named John Dalton and his putting forth the notion of an atom. You might remember studying about atoms, those tiny little things that supposedly compose or that contain electrons, neutrons, and protons. They are the basic fundamental bedrock idea out of which other things are made. Water contains, in fact, three of these atoms. There's two of them of hydrogen and one of them of oxygen. As one considers the notion of an atom and what has been developed from that now in only about 150 years, our issue is to notice, what is this word element, as Peter made reference to it here in 2 Peter 3, verse number 10? I have chosen to define that for you. The actual Greek word that appears there is the word stoion, S-T-O-I-C-H-I-O-N. The reason that takes on such an added interesting idea is that if you've taken chemistry, you know that one of the first things that you're asked to master in chemistry is called stoichiometry. It is the same root word as this one that we're now reading. That is absolutely breathtaking, isn't it? Could it be that as one made reference in the reading the Second Peter 3 verse 10 to the notion of the elements there, Could it be there's at least an indirect allusion to the basic constituency of all things? Notice the definition of that Greek word. It makes reference to first elements. It makes reference to basic structures. It makes reference to first principles. That which truly is of the most basic order of the prescription of the things of this universe. Peter said all of these elements even shall be burned up. That's an amazing conception, isn't it? John Dalton and the other fathers of modern chemistry didn't become convinced of the reality of atoms really until only again about 150 years ago. This statement by Peter is found in the sacred text of the Bible written from the hand of the apostle well over 1,800 years before that. That's a fascinating consideration, isn't it? and notice two verses later the same Greek word appears again this stoion referenced again to the fact that these will be consumed burned up and on the conflagration of that great and final day all of this physical universe will in fact be consumed the marvel of that appearance of the possibility of the word Adam predated by many many decades and centuries even the scientific discovery and setting forth of that idea Now what our students are asked to learn in early grades, we may notice Peter hinted at many, many years previous to it. That idea about the notion of these first elements, these fundamental substances and structures, perhaps leads us to the second idea in our study of chemistry tonight. Not only the realization of atoms, but could you note with me even the heavier atoms, It's somewhat interesting to notice that the modern presentation by scientists who subscribe to evolution is that the heavier elements were formed by various reactions and combinations of the lighter elements, such as elements like uranium and plutonium that are so heavy, in fact, were made from the simpler, lighter elements, but that process took literally millions and billions of years, so we are told. Here is where we need to ask about what God's Word may have to say about even heavier elements. When we studied geology a couple of weeks ago, we came to see then that the timetable set forth in the Word of God relative to the creation of earth, relative to how old the earth is, is a timetable that stands firm and rigid and true as presented in the Holy Word of God that same concept speaks volumes relative to these so-called heavier elements. For example, in Exodus 20, verse number 11, we encounter the statement on that occasion that in six days, the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And may we lay emphasis on the word all. Nothing physical was left out of that six-day period of time. Thus, these heavier elements must have appeared during the course of that six days. And that leads me to make this interesting observation from modern scientific experimentation. In recent years, some chemists have noted what they call radio halos. You will not often hear a chemist speak of these radio halos for the simple reason that this is what they mean. A radio halo is this particular halo kind of idea or shape that appears in certain what we're told is ancient substances. The fact that the halo is there is an indication that whatever it was that formed it or took place, it happened exceedingly quickly. So quickly, in fact, that it froze the halo in place from its radioactive decay. That means it could not have taken millions and billions of years. It would long since have decayed. And scientists find these radio halos in many, many places and discoveries around the world. I'd submit to you the existence of a radio halo was in perfect harmony with the Old Testament. That it was formed quickly. Uranium and plutonium formed quickly. It was not over vast eons and ages of time like we typically are told from evolutionary standpoints. And yes, even one more time, here are findings in modern-day science that seem to harmonize and unify beautifully with the matter of a quick and very powerful creation long ago. That concept of these radio halos and the existence of atoms tantalizes us with a thought that isn't it amazing that these foreknowledge concepts that seem so modern were hinted at or identically revealed many, many years ago in the Word of God. That kind of idea, be it the atom, be it these radio halos or the uh, heavier elements in their sudden formation, perhaps leads us to also briefly consider yet a third thing perhaps from chemistry. It has to do with ice and frost. The Old Testament on more than one occasion makes reference to ice and the frost and in those verses that you see referenced on, on that screen to my left in fact state that by the breath of God frost is given we each have seen at least on cold days like we had not too many days ago now that as you walk outside in the morning your breath in that very cold air con- condensation forms almost immediately And as that condensation appears and forms, you can actually see then your your breath in amidst the cold air that surrounds it. But isn't it interesting that the breath of God, the concept there is related to frost in the book of Job, chapter 37? Isn't it interesting that there could be there an illusion to the very powerful reality that the process of condensation is what produces frost in any of the places in which it is observed? when the temperature drops below that dew point. And as such, it means that condensation must form because the air can no longer hold the moisture. And the temperature being cold enough, frost is formed. Could that be an illusion, at least indirectly, of that text? Psalm 147, verse number 17, makes a reference to ice and presents it again as that which comes forth from the very power of God, the majesty of what is recognized in the world of chemistry when the solidification of liquid water takes place and the interesting crystal structure of ice develops. Even today, we realize at times the damaging possibility of that, but on other times, we appreciate the powerful aspect of it as well. Any of these three ways that we have seen perhaps atoms, the consideration of the heavier elements formed quickly and also the nature of ice or frost? Are we not seeing at least hints of chemical foreknowledge in the scriptures long before scientists came to themselves discovering those things? I'd submit that's a remarkable consideration. This book has tremendous secrets in terms of things that God wrote by His Holy Spirit And as we read that and appreciate it, we can see that scientists in their wisdom have sometimes come to appreciate that. And may you and I longingly desire to study and to learn more and more about the wonderful Word of God. Scientists would do well to let themselves be guided by the Scriptures. And even today, those who work in areas in biology especially, things like that, when they will allow God's Word to guide and to properly form the limits of their research, they're wise individuals indeed. Tonight though, not only chemistry, but might we also consider a few thoughts about physics. Certainly a subject somewhat near and dear to my heart in as much as I've had the privilege and opportunity to work in the area of physics for, for a little while, But as one considers some of the teachings, some of the things set forth in a typical physics class, maybe you've taken physics in high school or or in college, and as you took those courses, you saw a study of machines, and energy, and matter, and the interactions that often take place among them, and the underlying fundamental structure from a physical standpoint of this universe. I might submit to you, God's Word is not silent on things that relate to physics. And so over the next few moments, let us take a journey in which we too can come to see just a few of the ideas in physics that are to be found in the Word of God. I listed by way of definition the things that I just pointed out, and it would also be entirely fair to say that we have all benefited greatly from physicists and their work over the years, That car that we drive, a physicist had a role to play in the development of the engine many, many decades ago, the invention of it. Physicists, of course, in their development and discovery of the principles that allow indoor heating and air conditioning, engineers that put those things to practice. What does the Bible have to say about things that would relate to physics? I've chosen four of them tonight, and I would hope that these would be somewhat illuminating to us especially as one turns his attention to this first one. Might we notice briefly about light and radiation? We are aware that light is certainly a marvelous thing. It allows us to see, and thus when we go into a room and turn the light on, and the light in fact bounces off the things that are therein and enters our eye and allows us to see what is in that room. But isn't it also amazing that we can, say, use a prism and allow light to transmit through it and coming out the other side, the light is broken into a spectrum. There's a whole array of colors, red all the way to violet. How is it that light is parted and is, in fact, composed, it seems, of these other individual colors? In fact, white light is a composition of all the other colors. If you add up white and green and blue and yellow and all them and put it together, you get white. Well, what is it that we find, in fact, in Job 38, verse 24? God, on that occasion, asked Job a question. He said, by what way is the light parted? And God gave a very clear indication that it was possible to part light. It was possible to split it into a spectrum perhaps or to see its composition in terms of something else. Friends, scientists did not discover that until the work of Newton only now a little less than 400 years ago. And yet God spoke those things to Job, written in that book of Job, perhaps the most ancient of all books in the Old Testament. If that's true, that book was written now well over 3,500 years ago. Isn't that amazing that perhaps God had a reference to the very possibility of splitting white light into its various components that far in the past? But not only that. Notice what else is found in that very same verse. Isn't it fascinating that God makes use of the word way? By what way is the light parting? Indicating that light travels by way of some path. That there is, in fact, a path. A message way if you please through which and along which light travels. That is interesting because now as recently as only about 135 years ago, James Maxwell presented a theory and idea about the electromagnetic radiation of light. It does travel along a way. It does travel along a path. And students who study physics are asked to learn about that and to be able to solve problems that deal with it. The way along which light travels. I'd submit Job made mention of that or God did to Job millennia ago now. Perhaps we could also notice another thing that attaches to that from the same chapter. In Job 38 verse 7, God asks Job a question that has to do with the stars singing. The singing of the stars. You and I are well aware that you and I can hear sound. As something takes place, or as I'm speaking currently, the sound waves propagate through the air, and your ear detects, and you are able to understand that which I say. When we think about the singing of the stars, are they also, in fact, emitting something that's propagating through the air or through the interstellar space and coming to us? They are. It's that radiation, that light it can very well be said the stars are singing to us. And that's the very word that God used in Job 38, verse number 7. As one makes mention then of light and this issue of the radiation and the pathway along which it travels, let's turn our attention to another consideration as well. Not only that, but notice the issues concerning cause and effect. One of the most basic... And, in fact, one of the most fundamental presentations in any of the sciences, but it certainly seems appropriate to physics, is that of cause and effect. Not a scientist in the world, to my knowledge, would in fact present or experiment in any way that would call into question the law of cause and effect. Everything that is done scientifically is based upon an application of the law of cause and effect. One might ask, what is this law, then, if it's so important? It simply states this, every material effect must have had an adequate antecedent cause. Now, think about that with me. Everything we observe had to come about by some particular appropriate cause. Things just do not happen. We are aware of that every day and really use it frequently and to our great benefit as we look at the world around us. For instance, as we look at our car, when we perhaps walk out in the morning and find that we have a flat tire, our first thought is not a fly rested on our car and thus made the tire flat. We know the weight of a fly is not sufficient to cause that. There may be a nail in the tire. There could be some other type of deformity on the rim. Something has happened that was adequate to produce the effect we see. Every scientist has great confidence in the law of cause and effect. Might I submit that that has great things to say about the nature of this universe in which we live. Let's apply that same principle. If this universe is, in fact, a tremendously great effect, and certainly it is... We peer into the heavens and see the myriad of stars, the amazing sun that offers us beautiful sunlight, and we see the things about us from day to day. Good question. Where did all of that come from? The law of cause and effect would have to say that it came about by some appropriate cause that could have brought it about. It did not just happen, cause and effect would say. But many scientists then out of the other side of their mouth will say, well, sometime a long time ago there was a big bang and it just happened. It can't be both ways. If cause and effect is enforced, then it could not have just happened. And yet we observe about us that experiments are carried out, research is done, all based on the validity of the law of cause and effect. This universe didn't just happen. What was the cause that brought it about? Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God was the first cause. He brought it about. He set things into motion and orchestrated this universe with the marvelous wonder that it exhibits. In Psalm 33 verse number 9, He spake and it was done. Notice the power behind that that exclamatory statement. God spoke and it happened. In Hebrews 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We can see then that God brought these things into existence by speaking them as such. This interesting fact then of this second idea, the law of cause and effect, challenges us even in regard to Psalm 147 verse number 18. When one thinks about the hint of cause and effect that's presented in that verse, it has to do with weather systems. One could even ask the same series of questions concerning how did the weather systems first get started? Cold fronts and warm fronts and the snow and the other hot weather that sometimes comes our way. There had to be something initially that set all of that into motion. That text says that the God of heaven set all of that into motion. Might we thus take a great deal of comfort in the fact that the Bible is in perfect harmony with the law of cause and effect. And yet that is presented and taught openly and powerfully in physics classes all around the world. And yet the Bible teaches the very same idea. In regard to cause and effect, that does relate interestingly to the very next consideration for the evening. The first law of thermodynamics. One of the most basic prescriptions in physics is the first law of thermodynamics. Perhaps you have heard it presented in other ways. The idea behind it is simple. It reads somewhat like this. Neither energy nor matter can be created or destroyed. All that can be done is to transform it from one form to another. Now ponder that with me. The amount of energy that, that particular thing says that we now have is what we've always had. We cannot create any more. Furthermore, we can't destroy any of what we currently have. The energy available to the human family and into the universe at large is fixed and is unchangeable. That's what the first law of thermodynamics says. Through rather stringent experiments for many decades, not a single violation of that law has ever been found. Not one though many types of experiments can change the form of energy. We can convert it from mechanical to electrical, but we don't add any to what we have. There's the same amount afterward as there was before. That's amazing when we consider, what is that saying? The first law of thermodynamics, we can't create any more energy and we can't destroy any of it either. I wonder if things related to that might be found in the Bible. The first law of thermodynamics was not stated by any scientist until the middle part of the 19th century. That's less than 150 years ago now. I would like to ask you to read a verse found from the book of Genesis, the very first book in all the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse number 1, we find the following interesting statement. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. In that opening chapter, we will remember that six days of creation were described in which God brought forth various things such as light and the firmament and the dry land and the plant life and all the heavenly bodies and then the life in the seas as well as the atmosphere and finally land animals and life on the land in day six, mankind as well. After summarizing all of that and detailing it, then this verse occurs. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. What's so significant about that is the verb that Moses chose to use. You see, the language itself, the verbs that are used have great meaning in terms of they identify points in time. For example, if I were to say, Yesterday I went to the store. That identifies an action that took place then, but is not taking place now. If, on the other hand, I were to say, I am going to the store or I have gone to the store, notice that it allows action to continue to be taking place. The actual Hebrew verb that Moses used identifies an action that Paul, in fact, ceased and stopped at the point of the ending of the creation. In other words, there was no longer any creative activity at the time of Genesis 2 verse 1. The creative events were punctiliar in time, to borrow the words that the Hebrew often uses, and it stopped. It was not a continuous action verb. That's significant. That means that that creation stopped when God finished it and whatever energy was instilled within this universe, it has remained so. Man can't create any more of that. And what's more, he can't destroy any of what God put within it either. In fact, might I submit that there are some other verses that seem to relate to that idea of the destructiveness and man's inability to do that. I've listed them for your consideration. In Nehemiah 9 verse 6, we notice that after the days of the Babylonian captivity... On that occasion, God spoke to Nehemiah and made reference to the fact that it is he, the God of heaven, who not only fashioned the earth and the sea and the sky and all things therein, but he goes on to say, and preservest them all. Note the verb, preservest. The idea behind that Greek word is to maintain, to sustain. He upholds all things. That may well be an indication of the fact that man cannot destroy or remove any of that essential energy that, in fact, is found within the universe itself. But not only Nehemiah. Notice also in Hebrews 1, verse number 3. Here the Hebrew writer, in making reference to the power of the Son, that is S-O-N, Christ Jesus, he said, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And now note verse 3 By whom also he made the worlds, and upholdeth all things by the word of his power. There is a word, upholdeth, meaning that Christ Jesus is the sustainer of. All the matters concerning this physical universe with respect to the laws put in place, that's an amazing conception. If the Lord is sustaining it, then it stands to reason that man can't destroy any of it. He cannot take away any of the energy, he can't cause it to cease to be. That only harmonizes, it seems, with Isaiah 40, verse 26. There the writer Isaiah said, none of what God has fashioned will fail. It faileth not. That's strong language, isn't it? It's true that some things that man may fashion, we may build a bridge or a building in a tornado may wipe that out. But what God has fashioned concerning the basic rudimentary structure concerning matter and energy, man cannot remove it. He can't destroy any of it. Perhaps one final text in Ecclesiastes 3.14, which rings the same refrain. When we've looked then at Genesis 2 verse 1, the fact that the creation ended, meaning we cannot create anything more, and these other verses that indicate we can't remove any of the energy or matter God has made, that seems to ring boldly with the first law of thermodynamics. With that consideration of the first law of thermodynamics, I might ask you to consider the words that I have defined as it relates to those verses I just listed. If you'd like to copy them down and perhaps refer to them yourself in in this week at some point, you'll notice that these words upholdeth and these words faileth. Have the idea that drives home the point of man's inability to remove these basic rudimentary things that God has put in place. Perhaps one final thing tonight from the world of physics, and the lesson will be yours. I hope that we've each been encouraged as we consider these scientific truths in the Bible. We just looked at the first law of thermodynamics. Let's consider the second law of thermodynamics in in the closing few moments of the lesson tonight. You see, just as surely as the first law is a basic matter which must be mastered, it also is true that the second law must also be mastered. For it is so vital as man makes machines and devices. That second law of thermodynamics, if I may try to put it in words or language I think that we each can easily appreciate, simply makes the statement that things about us are wearing out. Things move to a state of greater disorder over time. You and I go and buy a new car today, and it won't be very long that it will not have the luster and shine it once had. You leave it out in the elements, things wear out. You build a brand new house, and it isn't long until it will begin to show its age. And we each know physically, from the perspective of the body, that for those of us that are older, we aren't 20 anymore. We aren't teeing anymore. Age takes its toll on the body. We can't do what we once could. Things wear out. In a nutshell, that is one critical element of the second law of thermodynamics. But may I submit to you, not only as it relates to the kinds of things I've referenced, it also relates to the universe as a whole. The universe is wearing out. It's as though there was a time at some point in the past when the clock was fully wound up. And it's been winding down ever since. You see, the universe is not tending toward higher and higher stages of order. It's wearing out, not the opposite. I wonder, does God's Word have anything to say about this wearing out of things? It was read tonight in the lesson text. Let's revisit the 102nd Psalm, verse 26. And notice the interesting statement there made by the psalmist so long ago. Psalm 102, I'll begin reading in verse 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens of the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed." Of specific interest to us is that fact that he says, specifically in verse 26, they shall perish, but what's more, they shall wax old as doth a garment. Now he uses the analogy to it to a garment. When he's referring to they, notice it's the heavens. This material universe is wearing out. The psalmist said that it is. And today science affirms that it is. But isn't it amazing? It was in the Bible that long ago, written fully thousands of years before scientists ever wrote the second law of thermodynamics. It's wearing out. But notice not only that text. In Isaiah 51, verse number 6, we notice yet another rather dramatic and rather straightforward reference to the fact that the earth's system is wearing out. I'd submit to you there couldn't be a clearer statement of the second law of thermodynamics in the Bible than these two passages. And yet as we consider each of them, there is yet another to which I would draw your attention. In Hebrews 1, verse number 11, in the very heart of the New Testament, as the Hebrew writer in fact made reference to this, I'd like to ask you to read that verse with me, especially since we've just now read the one from the Psalms. In Hebrews 1, Beginning in verse number 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." There, the Greek word that is translated to wax old literally, in fact, means to make or become old. The heavens that you and I look at, it may look so pristine and unchanging, but friend, it's wearing out like a garment. We may go up here to a store in Cookville and buy a brand new shirt or a brand new tie. Left alone, that garment's wearing out. Over time, it will not have the appearance it once did. The same thing the Bible says is happening to this universe. It's wearing out. That alone, again, is a perfect statement of the second law of thermodynamics. What our students are thus asked to learn in school was written in a very powerful fashion in the Scriptures centuries and centuries ago. I might submit that when we study things like that in the Bible, it should give us a greater assurance and a greater confidence in the fact that man did not write this book. The Holy Spirit penned it. He provided it. He made it available. And when we study and learn and read it, we can find nuggets of truth, even scientific in character, that will challenge us even today to appreciate that, in fact, man couldn't have written it. There was not a person alive who knew about anything called the second law of thermodynamics at the time this book was written, but yet the truths of that law are found in it. I've selected just a few references from chemistry and physics tonight, hopeful that they have been encouraging and edifying to us to contemplate the marvelous wonder of the book that we study. As we conclude the lesson tonight, I might submit that whether it it be chemistry and the notion of atoms, or physics and the laws of thermodynamics, Considerations of their truth are even found in the Bible. Tonight, our interest, of course, for the time being is to ask, have you humbled your life and bowed before the one who put these laws in place? He is the overruling power behind all things. This universe is merely an expression of the orderliness of His way and the structural underpinnings of what God would have us to appreciate concerning His greatness. Have you relinquished control of your life to Him? If you have not, let tonight be that night. Jesus, in fact, when He was dispatched from heaven to come to this low land of sin and of sorrow and to put in place a plan whereby sinful humanity could be saved, we read these words in John 8, 24, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. It is too horrible to contemplate dying in sin. Jesus shed His blood that those sins could be forgiven and cleansed. Belief alone, though, is not enough. One must also repent of those sins, Luke 13, 3. To repent means to change one's mind toward with the intent to lead toward a different action with respect to them. Furthermore, one must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you need to have that accomplished in your life, why not tonight? Today indeed is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. But furthermore, if you have become a Christian at one former day and you have lived for a while tasting the goodness of God's glory, Hebrews 6 verse 4, but you have long since begun to live disgracefully, shamefully if you please, no longer being the bright and shining beacon of goodness for God, realize the Lord is waiting for you to return to His side. He hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on Him. Come back to your first love. Let us pray on your behalf that God will forgive you of those things. You need to believe that He will and repent of them, of course. And as you confess them, He has promised to forgive. We could pray tonight that that would be accomplished. And if that needs to be done, don't delay. But let us know that if you would, even now while together we stand and while we sing.